Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. In this episode, I speak with Grammy nominee Joey Ryan of the Milk Carton Kids. Joey is a fantastic songwriter, singer, and guitar player. Anyone who has been to a Milk Carton Kids show knows that Joey is also an incredible comedian. He and his bandmate Kenneth host the Sad Songs Summer Camp in July. If you have the means, I strongly encourage you to go. If you want to immerse yourself in the music featured in this show, check out Relax Your Playlist on Spotify. Each month, I add all the music from the latest episodes so that you can enjoy every song in its entirety. Welcome to Relax Your Grid. Thank you, Matt. So happy to be on your podcast. The last time we spoke over the phone, I guess, was early in this two-year-long pandemic. And you and Kenneth had had all your touring shows just wiped out. Um, but I looked at your schedule the other day, and I see a bunch of dates on your calendar. What What's your level of optimism that you're going to get to go play a bunch of shows for real coming up? Oh, it's high. Like our shows have been happening. We haven't had any cancellations. We got a little bit lucky in that we didn't just we didn't have any shows scheduled for like the uh the the height of Omicron just by chance. So we had a tour that happened right before Omicron and then another one like a little short week in the Midwest that happened right after. And so yeah, we actually haven't had a show cancel since we started, you know, rebooking all the shows. And uh, I don't know, I'm feeling good, but we've had waves of optimism before <laughs> that have not lasted. So I'm definitely trying to hold on to that lesson of the pandemic that, you know, of taking nothing for granted. But, um, you know, in two weeks, we're supposed to be on a two week to, or whenever this, when is this going to air? April 1st, we're going to, we, this might come out, this episode is probably airing on the first day of our two week tour, assuming that it's happening. Uh, so we go, yeah, all across the East coast and the Southeast and hopefully I'm having fun right now when this podcast comes out. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, does your touring life look any different in terms of COVID protocols or who's, who's on the tour or what you do before the show or after the show? I'm asking because I, I saw Punch Brothers play here in Louisville the other week and they couldn't have anyone you know, visit afterwards there. The theater was checking vaccination cards before you even got in the door. How does, how's it different for you? Yeah. Our, our last two tours have been like, it sounds like similar to that. You know, uh, we go, we established our protocols with the venues. Some of the venues have their own and we have our own 
And um, we did have to switch a couple of the venues because they usually because they couldn't uh, do our protocols, um, depending on what state or county or city they were in, uh, even though some of them wanted to. And um, but yeah, then we had we wouldn't have anybody backstage, didn't have to, you know, didn't I'll say didn't get to do our meet and greets because everybody knows we love the meet and greet. Um, but, uh, the, all of that sort of whatever damper that was put on by that stuff in just sort of a heightened level of anxiety and just consciousness of that we were traveling around in COVID times, uh, was definitely offset by the feeling I got from everybody involved in the show, from the venue staff to the promoters, to everybody that attended the show that like, they were so happy to be there. And anybody that didn't want to be there was not there. Like there was there's just this feeling that like everything right now is totally optional. Like this is this is live music. This is, you know, a luxury. I you know, I think you could easily make a good case that it's actually essential <laughs> for survival. And uh, for a lot of people, you know, um that's that's even more true than others because a lot of our a lot of our lives are built around it, and I don't just mean the musicians. I mean you know fans too. Um, but you know you cannot go to the show and get a full refund on your ticket. We can cancel the show for any reason, right up until the show, if we don't feel comfortable. And everybody knows that, and everybody's cool with just how sort of optional it is, right up until the last minute. So you feel that I felt that everybody that was there was only there because they really wanted to be. And it, it was a different feeling and it was a good feeling, I will say. Does that mean that if you, if you look back um, to 2018, 2014, that you can analyze some of those crowds of having some people who were obliged to be there or forced to be there against their will? <laughs> um. It's definitely a different feeling, you know? I mean, you go through a loss and it helps you not take things for granted. I definitely was going through a phase before the pandemic of feeling like I had to do it, you know, taking laps around the country because that's what I wanted my whole life was to be able to be a touring musician. And now here we were with the privilege of being able to do it. And so how could you justify not doing it, even if it didn't, you didn't feel like you wanted to do it. Um, so maybe it was just taking a break or maybe it was, you know, feeling like it was sort of ripped away involuntarily, but my level of appreciation for the whole thing is very high right now. And I feel that coming from the audience and then also the venue staff, like, you know, there's a little bit of a thing or there was, you know, maybe a few months ago of like, you know, I think there was there was some stimulus and some unemployment benefits. And like there was this little bit of a feeling of like you didn't have there were ways that you didn't have to go to work if you didn't feel comfortable, especially like very public facing jobs. And uh, so the people that wanted to be there, I just really felt like they wanted to be there. The venue staff were super happy, positive, you know helpful, accommodating. They appreciated our COVID protocols. It felt like they were keep, you know, we were helping to keep them safe as they got to go back to work and do what they love doing. So uh yeah, it just felt good to be a part of it. When she calls, don't send her my way. 
So often in this show, I, I focus with artists on one particular album of theirs that that really resonates with me. And you and Kenneth, as the Milk Carton Kids, have put out so much beautiful music over the years that it would be hard to choose an album to focus on, except that not too long ago, you released a live record. And it happens to be, I think I've told you this before, um, before this podcast aired, um, but for years now, it's been my favorite thing you two have ever created. And I first saw it as a YouTube video um, of a live show and it's beautifully shot and the sound is pristine. But now you've released it as an album that people can just stream on on all the streaming services. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that performance and that album and that video and how that all came to extend past the night of the show into um, a record we can listen to or a video we can watch. I assume you're talking about Live from Lincoln Theater. I'm talking about Live from Lincoln Theater, which was recorded, I think, on October 29th or some someday very, very soon before Halloween because it starts with some conversation between the two of you about whether or not one is obligated to report on a Halloween costume as a full-grown adult. <laughs> we were at a point, I think, when would that have been, like... 2012 or 13 I will have to look up when what year in October that was recorded because um, I can't remember now but what I do know it was it was a couple years into our just sort of constant touring you know at least 120 shows a year for several years and we felt like sort of kind of accidentally a a show was emerging that like felt like it had an arc to it that we, we sort of were zeroing in on a a bit of a set list that would change a little bit from night to night but it started to coalesce around a certain song order which had a, a nice emotional arc to it and we had learned a couple years earlier that we liked talking to the audience between songs and that um, and, and so over the course of a couple of years, a couple of the introductions to the songs had coalesced into like, uh, you know, kind of comedy bits almost. And, uh, a lot of them somehow were centered on grammar and punctuation, which I still feel proud of because that's one of my favorite things to talk about is grammar and punctuation, as I'm sure many people feel the same way. And so, <laughs> yeah, I know you do. Um, and I think it was Kenneth's idea. He was like, hey, this is a, you know, we, I think this might actually be pretty good and it's kind of coalescing into something. And 
we're going to do a new out. Al- we were about to do, we were about to record whatever our new album was going to be, which ended up being Monterey. And he's like, before we start moving on and like incorporating a bunch of new songs, we should capture what it is we seem to have discovered in these last two years. And so he set it up to, um, we had this show, we were playing mostly like rock clubs at the time, but we had this one show coming up at Lincoln theater, which is like a beautiful theater. Um, and so we wanted to capture that one and we called our friend and wonderful videographer, filmmaker, editor, Brian Meir, who, um, actually looking back, like once we, once I saw the final product, which, you know, so Kenneth sort of directed and, and edited, um, but Brian, uh, Brian was insistent on doing all the, um, like the pre-show interviews and capturing a lot of the, uh, sort of like uh, B-roll is like minimizing, but like the, all a lot of the stuff that set the scene, um, but especially the interviews and, and edited that stuff together, uh, which I think really set the tone for the, for the film as well. Um, and so that he was kind of the first person that ever edited a conversation between me and Kenneth in a way where we were like, thought it was funny afterwards, even though I promise you it was not funny in the moment. Like we were not in a great mood when we were having that conversation before the state, before the show backstage and, and felt like it went terribly when we shot it. But Brian was insistent that we like have something. And then when we were done, he was like, that was great. And we were like, that was all right. That was terrible. Like, let's just go do the show. But then he edited it into this funny thing about Halloween or whatever. And we figured out that uh, comedy editing is, you know, is crucial. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Brian played, Brian and his crew played a huge part in it. And uh, I don't know, I think we got a little bit lucky on getting good performance. We cut some stuff out. There's a couple songs that are cut out. You know, we did a good amount of editing ourselves. Kenneth, you know, did a really good job. Kenneth engineered it. So you're the pristine sound that you're talking about is that's uh, all Kenneth's job, all, all uh, Kenneth's doing there. Um, I don't know. What else do you want to know? That that was boring. I feel like my answer just now was boring. Maybe you can edit it into something funny. <laughs> yeah, we're going to edit some comedy into that, just like splice, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. singers and uh, red herrings and Good. all sorts of. Yeah. No, I. it's funny because when when you released it as an album audio only, I was very skeptical because it is truly my favorite concert film I've ever seen. Um, Oh, thank you. I'm, you know, I'm already, I've got some, I got some other better ones to recommend. Great. Let's do that. Let's do that next. (laughs) Not of our, not of ours. Oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, We'll get to that because now I want to know, but you know, I was already a fan of your music and, um, we can talk at some point about how you and I got to play some music together and know each other better. But as a fan of the milk carton kids and a fan of watching something that, I mean, it, it was probably magical to be in the room that night, but in some ways I feel like the video, the the final product is an even more enjoyable experience than maybe having a seat in the last row at that show that night, just because it's so beautifully shot. Um, 
the audio quality is amazing. I feel like I can hear every note and hear every word and hear every, you know, every ligature and symbol um, in in the patter. It's just, it looks beautiful and it sounds beautiful. And I have literally sat people down and made them watch this. Like I've sat next to them and just said, okay, we're going to watch this for the next hour and 12 minutes or whatever. I will say one of the biggest like honors is when I'll see somebody post a photo of themselves on the internet, like with their feet up and a glass of wine and like that they're watching that concert film as like the thing they're doing for the evening. That to me is like, yeah, that makes me, that's one of those things where where it makes you feel like uh, the whole thing was worthwhile. Like you put a thing into the world that people will take that amount of time and intention out to enjoy, you know, most of the time I assume people are like hearing our songs because that it came up on whatever was next on Spotify or something, which is great too. But like, you know, the, the vanity side of things like once you, you want people to really dig in. So um, I'm glad we made something that like more than anything else, I think people, can can dig into it on that level. Well, if you're ever having a bad day, just text me and I will text you back my I have about 6 pictures of me doing that thing minus minus the wine. Maybe nobody else has actually posted those photos, it's just always you and <laughs> it's happened a bunch enough times that I think it's more people. It's just you. I'll just do it again then, just so you think it's this yeah, at least 11 people out there who've done this. Um but caveats aside, the past couple of days knowing we were going to have this conversation and record it um, I've listened to the album on Spotify and not seen the beautiful visuals of live from Lincoln theater. And it holds up. It's, it sounds amazing. The pattern is as hilarious. Um, because I've seen the film, I can picture some of the, you know, your beautiful guitars and the suits and the stage lighting and everything. Um, would you mind if as the full, clip that I share in this episode, if I actually share patter from that show leading into one of the songs itself. Yeah, of course not. So you're going to hear right now the the intro that is labeled as second fiddle going into the song Girls Gather Round. We're going to do something a little different now. Uh, for the past two and a half years, I've been operating under the directive that Kenneth issued on the day that we formed our band, which was, Joey, you've got to become a better guitar player. (laughs) And I have. I've been practicing. I sit in my room at least 10 minutes a day, (laughs) just drilling, finger picking, whatever else, mostly just finger picking. And it's come to the point where I've requested my moment during our set, my one moment, where I can step out from my very comfortable role of second fiddle to featured guitar player. So this is the song where I will show off. I'm gonna need your attention on this side of the stage. I need your eyes focused right here. Watch my hands and fingers as they fly across the fretboard. (laughs) I usually start it off and then Kenneth wants me to speed it up. 
The song is called Girls Gather Round. It's one of Kenneth's. Kenneth wrote it, as far as I can tell, about girls and his desire to have them gather around him. That's an incredibly limited reading of the text there, Joe. I admit I've never really paid attention to the lyrics other than the title. And I encourage you not to either. Seriously, I mean, if you try and dig too deep into the lyrics, who knows what you'll find. And anyway, I'm going to need your eyes and, and ears and attention over here. All eyes on me. You let the lessons stop timing Just hands on a clock That's what I'm gonna tell Papa when I leave It's a vision on the lonely road It's something that I've gotta know If I could drive this car on my own I guess I'll leave my girl behind I should have done that long ago Sometime I'm sure the pain will go away It wasn't working anyhow The burners on the stove burn out Shame I didn't figure it out before Girls gather round and let that long hair down Sing along with me before I go Let us have a drink and by God Don't let us think about the things that we ain't never gonna know I met a man in San Francisco He told me he did the same thing Fifty years ago he left his girl behind Now he sits there in the park one hand He's strumming his guitar Songs he found inside a bottle of wine I saw the same things on his face The ones that made me race away From everything I'd ever really known The scare to take responsibility From here and put her there Where everyone can see the seeds you sown Girls gather round and let that long hair down Sing along with me before I go Let us have a drink and by God Don't let us think about the things That we ain't never gonna know Here's my song They're just the thing right from the start It would keep us from the worries Safe from sound and safe from fury Safe at home besides the ones we know we love And if you told me from the start That I could never be apart from her I'd tell you, go to hell, get out of my way Now I've come back with my tail between my legs I didn't know the way a man can be a man all on his own Girls gather round and let that long hair down I sing a song I learned out on the road 
Let us have a drink of still by God Don't let us think about the things that we ain't never gonna know The sun is going down on this lonesome town But I've got you here to keep my company Did you ever have the feeling that we're living for a reason For that reason I won't ever let you go Did you ever have the feeling that we're living for a reason For that reason I won't ever let you go For that reason I won't ever let you go For that reason I won't ever let you go For that reason I won't ever let you go Now that's the one that I worried the most would not work without video because the gag is kind of visual. It is entirely visual. So let's let's do you mind telling the audience who have just only heard it as a as an audio what what they just heard um that is purely yeah, visual. Yeah, well it's just that I'm it's just that obviously uh <laughs> anybody who knows my guitar playing knows that I'm not playing that solo. So yeah, at the 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 punchline is the visual of Kenneth sort of raising his guitar up to the microphone and shredding and my taking credit for it. Uh, yeah. So like we do, we have some things like that, which, which actually is one of the reasons why we didn't put this out as, as an audio album for so long or even any other album that had any banter for so long is because I did, I did have some reservations and there are some things that we do that I felt only kind of worked visually uh, or, or at least accompanied by the visual. But I'll, I don't know. One of my favorite things to do is listen to comedy albums. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of visual, there's a huge visual component to even just like straight stand-up comedy. And uh, I find that you can really picture it, even if you've never, you know, like all the like old like I got a bunch of old classic comedy albums on vinyl and like you I've never seen the video of it and you don't have to and the audience will be laughing for some reason you don't know but it's fun to kind of <laughs> imagine why they might be laughing and see if you can picture it so I've gotten over the idea that all of the elements of there that have to be present there for it to really work. Yeah, and I'll go ahead just because I want everyone, all all of the people who listen to this episode, I want you to see that um, if you can. I'll put a link to the the video of the full concert we're talking about, um, so you can grab the visual aspect. But I I think it does work, and if people, if we just say this about the Milk Carton Kids, Kenneth is the lead guitar player. You are the the very um, agile finger picking rhythm guitar player, then the joke works. And as you know, more than anyone, the more you explain a joke, the funnier it is. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, I know that that's not supposed to be true, but that actually can be true. And let me explain what. We've, we've got 40 minutes. Go for it. We, we, we've skirted around this issue, but but you are known to be quite funny. And I'm curious... At what point did you ever did you ever consider like trying to do stand up versus putting comedy within a musical context? No, 
I think it's uh, it, it's a huge crutch to have to come up onto a stage where you're not expected to do comedy and to say something even remotely subversive or unexpected, you know, lands a much bigger punch than than uh, if that is the expectation. And beyond that, like, it's so, it, we spend a lot of time figuring out how to write and perform sad, beautiful music. And with that as a sort of foil, uh, it's much easier to like do something light or funny against that. And it, I mean, you could do, you could do a comedy show where <laughs> with that sort of, um, emotional range too. It would be more like a, you know, these like one person shows that take you all through all the, uh, vast expanse of human emotion and not, aren't just jokes all the time, which I'd love, but that I think is, that's as hard of an art form as doing folk music. So, you know, it'd be like, yeah, it'd be like asking a comedian if they ever thought about playing songs during their set. <laughs> You'd be like, well, I'd have to learn how to play guitar and write songs and, you know. Do you know that Mitch Hedberg thing about like making stand-up comedians try and act in movies? And he gives the analogy of like, if you went up to like a, a fantastic chef and being like, you're a really great chef. Can you farm? As if, as if anything related to food is just equally accessible or anything related to entertaining people. Yeah, I get that. Did these funny bits between the, the sad songs, were they ever things that you just sat down and said, like, I'm going to write an intro for this song? Or did they all develop over just hundreds and hundreds of live shows everything on that uh live from lincoln theater and almost everything we have ever done is just sort of an accident <laughs> um including the idea that we would like be funny between songs in the first place i, I think like the the a bit that's on that live from lincoln theater is the intro to our song to kenneth's song charlie and i think that might be one of the first things like one of the first sort of bits recurring song intros to emerge and it emerged by accident. Like I, I think I said, I said, you know, essentially the punchline, but I didn't, I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just sort of saying that Kenneth wrote a song for his daughter, but he didn't have one. And uh, I didn't think that was going to be funny when I said it. And then people laughed and then it was like a little bit of a light bulb moment. In my memory, which could be false, we were at Jam and Java outside of Washington, D.C. when that happened. Vienna, Virginia, right? Yeah, in Vienna, Virginia. Um, and Kenneth's not here to correct me, so I'll just go with it as if that's true. But so the, in my memory, yeah, that it happened. That happened, and then it was like, oh, like something about the way I said that really just sort of straight was uh, it made the audience laugh. And then I kind of got a little bit addicted to that. Charlie, you'll be strong. Charlie, you'll be smart. Charlie, you'll be anything you want to from the start. Charlie, oh my baby, you'll be every bit the lady that'll go on breaking this old lonely heart. Do you find that you're more addicted to laughter than applause or is it equal? 
way more addicted to laughter because the applause happens no matter what. And not only that, an encore happens no matter what, which is, I don't know what we're going to do about this, Matt, but the encore is such an ingrained formality in the, uh, in the cycle of a live performance that we got, we got an encore. We got a hilarious encore at the worst show we have ever performed without question. It's not close. And it's not a show that like we thought it was bad, but the audience was like, great show. The audience knew it was bad. They did not like it. They told us so with their applause or lack thereof. And still, so here's what happened. We were in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm bringing it back to Louisville um, at Zanzibar. Okay. Half of the PA didn't work. I believe it was the right half. So we're just, the odds are against us. And for whatever reason, we were just playing wrong chords and not like for a second, like both of us thought we were like, I don't know what happened. Like we, I would just be on the wrong chord for a whole measure, but like sure that I was on the right chord and Kenneth was wrong. So it would just be like sour for like a long time. And then we would, that would get in our heads and we'd forget lyrics and not an acute way where we like make a joke about it and recover. Like, I think twice we like stopped the song in the middle of the song. And we're just like, was it like, what are, did not have like a, a graceful recovery, just like had to kind of apologize and, and count back in and start in the middle of a song. Like I cannot, I'm doing my best to describe how actually bad it was, you know, and not in that musician's way of like, we were off tonight and the audience didn't notice. They noticed it was awkward. It was bad. And when you exit the stage at the end of the show at Zanzibar, there's no like side stage or backstage entrance. You walk out off the stage is about 12 inches high. You step down and you walk out down the center aisle of the audience. Normally it would be a standing audience. We, in those days, were, were bringing in folding chairs to the dive bars that we were playing to make like a seated theater-ish environment. So they're seated in two sections and we walked out down the center aisle. So we took our bow, they applauded obligatorily. And there's about 11 rows of chairs, right? By the time we, we were walking out and by the time we hit the second row, the applause had stopped, okay? This is how long the applause did not last. We walked the remaining nine rows in silence, we walked, then there's a, then you exit the live room and there's a front bar. We walked all the way through the front bar, out the front door of the venue and across the street to the other building where the green room is. That's what the, that's the green room. Got into the green room, put our guitars away in our cases, apologized to each other for whatever the hell had just happened. Vowed to not like post game the show. We're just like, that hopefully that never happens again. Let's move on, have a drink. I tell you all this detail to sort of articulate how much time went by between when we left the stage and the applause had stopped until the promoter then came into the green room that was across the street from the venue and came in the room and we were like, sorry, I don't know what happened. And he goes, well, 
are you guys going to come back and do your encore? And we were like, what are you talking about? Like they stopped applauding literally 120 seconds ago. Like it's been a full two, maybe three minutes since they stopped applauding. We've been out of the room for at least a minute and a half. And he goes, yeah, well, they're still sitting there waiting for you to come back and do your encore. And we were like, you got to be kidding me. What? No, there's no way we can do an encore. And he's like, well, I, they're, they're still there waiting. And like the house music's not on, which is our, we had a guy with us doing sound and that's, he should, he should have put up the sound music. Anyway, we put our guitars back on, walked back across the street, in through the front room, back down the center aisle to no applause, took the stage. When we took the stage, there's probably a smattering of a few applause, played one, played another song, bowed again, walked again, they applauded mildly again, the applause stopped when we hit the second row on our way out of the room the second time. And that was the show. That was the encore that we got at the worst show we've ever, the audience didn't even want the encore. They just knew it was going to happen. And they were just waiting for us to come back and inflict it upon them. So anyway, it, yeah, the applause happens. The encore happens, but the laughter, like when the laughter doesn't happen, like that's how, you know, <laughs> that's how, you know, it didn't work. And if it does happen, that means, you know, you did something right. So how many nights are you doing in Louisville on this tour? Exactly. Oh my God. And we've had great shows in Louisville before that and since that. It was just that one night. I don't know. I've never been to a show at Zanzibar only because of COVID. A couple of people have played there. Um, Bronwyn Keith Hines, last month's guest with Molly Tuttle. Would have gone. COVID. Actually, I think I had COVID that night, actually. Um, so I definitely didn't go. But I cannot wait to go and picture this experience um, that proves I'm, I'm definitely in your camp. I unfortunately have not had the experience that you've just described in excruciating detail. But even before hearing that story, I was firmly of the belief that encores, because they've become obligatory, are completely useless. There's this great jazz mandolin player in, in the Chicagoland area named Don Sternberg. And he trained with Jethro Burns of Homer and Jethro. So they were a comedy music making duo. Mm-hmm. And Don has some of Jethro's jokes. He he um, acquired them. And Don will often play his encore first at the beginning of the night. That's funny. Um, just to, you know, because sometimes people have to leave early. <laughs> Victor Borga did a similar thing as well, I think, in his uh, classical piano comedy thing. Yeah. I think I think it's going to take enough people doing, like, just making making the encore, like, appear as ridiculous as it is before art, more artists feel like they can just not worry about it. Well, I, yes. And so, but I have to say, even out, and now I know I just told that whole story, but I found in our last week of shows through the Midwest, uh, I don't know if just COVID has thawed all of my pessimism regarding everything, but I felt very in touch across that week with the, even though it's not like a true 
encore, like in the sense that the audience just won't leave and you have to come back out and play. The idea that there is something to the arc and the rhythm of the show that is accomplished by exiting the stage, signaling, you know, it signals that the show's almost over. There's a lot of other ways that you could do that. Uh, but the role that the, you know, the sort of faux encore construct plays in indicating to the audience like that it's the there's like an emotional crux of the show happening i actually became like convinced that it's crucial and good and important <laughs> so uh unless you're unless you can accomplish it another way which some which you know you can it just require it requires some effort so it is a little bit of a shortcut um in terms of the theatrics of it but i like it and i think the audience likes it and so now, even though I just told that big story, I'm a proponent of the obligatory encore. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the post-COVID obligatory encore um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but and there also are still true encores. There are there are instances of wh where you can feel like that the audience just won't leave. I've been in the audience for more than one Gillian Welch show, for example, where there'll be three or four encores. And I, I don't think, maybe they're just great at it, but I don't think that it's like on the set list. I, I think, you know, it felt, it felt very, spon it felt spontaneous uh, when, in the, when I was in the audience multiple times, you know, there'll be like three or four. It's interesting that you bring up ARC because I feel like one, one of the reasons I love the live concert video and accompanying audio live from Lincoln theater is that I feel like that show is a great model of how to have an arc in a show for any, and it's a genre list concept of like, what is the trajectory of your, of your performance? But you're right that the encore and a, and a pre encore, which I guess, is that just the last song before you leave is the pre encore. Is that what, we, what we've decided? Sure that they can be incorporated into the show itself. I get a little suspicious when there's an encore that is clearly like a medley of like five things that is highly arranged and has, you know, key changes. And, you know, it's obviously just like a final block of music that has been programmed. Um, yeah. And that that's where I feel like I'm being a little manipulated. It's like, just put that in the show itself. Like, don't, mm. don't pretend that I demanded this. You know, <laughs> okay, but you didn't personally. But let me just—I uh, know we're both musicians and fans. But if we can switch our perspective to that of the musician, the audience has made it obligatory, so the artist knows that it's coming. So wouldn't it be more disrespectful of the artist to just not plan anything, knowing that it's going to happen? I think it is because, you know, there are those unfortunate encores where it's a bunch of people on stage who don't actually play together and it's highly unplanned. And it's just like this, um, I was going to say gazpacho, but, but gazpacho actually makes sense. It's just like, you know, when you have a bunch of leftovers in the fridge and you make an omelet out of it and it's like awful, but at least it's not going in the trash can. It's going into your mouth first. Yeah. And that omelet, the name for that omelet is the weight. Yeah, if I never have to play that song again in an open jam on stage. It's one of the great, truly great songs, and I've only ever played it in the worst of scenarios. I think we share this view. If a song is that deserving, doesn't it deserve to be well rendered? Right. 
Okay, so am I coming around almost to convincing you that the highly arranged medley and key change encore is is actually um, sort of a valid expression at, at the ending ending arc of a show? Yeah, and and, and uh, I guess I'm just saying they're not trying to they're not trying to manipulate you. They're everybody just knows that I'm pretty much every almost every time we come out for an encore now, I say thank you. That's very unexpected before we play the next song. Because you do, you know, everybody knows it's happening. They knew it was happening. We knew it was happening. Let's let's not pretend. I'm not trying to manipulate you into thinking that you demanded this. Like, it's on our set list. It's part of the show. It's just part of the show that we do. Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I, I think the value of it, like where it's been on my mind is Bela Fleck just played... Um, the Ryman and streamed it worldwide. I watched the live stream from wherever we were that day. And then he played Carnegie Hall the next night or two nights later. I assume it was the same set in New York that it was in Nashville. And their, their encore wasn't one piece. It was like a, a mini set. And it got me thinking about like, am I being manipulated or is Bela, who's a perfectionist, is he maintaining the quality of the final portion of music? So it matches everything that you enjoyed before. And I, right. Knowing what I know about him, I know that like he wants the encore to be sound good, and so there's preparation. He knows it's coming, right? Why pretend you don't know it's coming? That's a great philosophy for this business. Swing sets are empty, like dirt turn the dark of the night. The center of this town, it used to whirl in the glow of twilight. And it might look like God's away with all the trouble these days. We'll come home before the girls are grown. We're coming home tonight. What have we done? Run this country into such a sight. I'm in the promotion business here. I'm happy to promote your camp that you have coming up this summer. We've already kind of mentioned your tour. Is there anything aside from the camp that we should talk about that would be good for you? Our summer camp, our sad song summer camp, which is kind of a new thing for us, is maybe my favorite thing that we do throughout our year now at this point. And it is a, it was a... Pr- it's another thing besides like COVID that has contributed to my pessimism thaw. Like after we did the first camp, I was just like uh, totally reinvigorated on the idea of being a performing songwriter and what that means. And like the idea that it's transcends like the egotism of being on stage in the spotlight the whole time. And that, it's possible to, you know, I had lost touch, I think, with being a music fan after being on stage and on tour for so long and and how important music had always been to me as a fan. And um, so spending four days, uh, or I guess it's like really three days with some super fans of ours that were nevertheless not there to like be super fans, but are, they come to our camp to 
do their own songwriting. Most of them are professional or semi-professional or like serious hobbyist songwriters. A lot of, a, a good amount of them are, are not at all songwriters and are just there to have fun and learn. And they, they write song, they write a song too while they're there. Cause we force them to, um, it's like the ratatouille of, uh, summer camps. Anyone can write a song, uh, which is true. It turns out. Um, but anyway, spending time with specifically fans of ours in that context just removed all my pessimism, pessimism and ego about being a performer and uh, sort of really indulge in this like two way reciprocal uh, exchange between like people pursuing the same craft of songwriting. And so I was profoundly affected by it. We've done it um, twice now and we would have, it would have been three except one got, we missed one for COVID and we have another one again this July. If anyone uh, is a fan of ours and wants to spend three days doing like in a, a songwriting and harmony singing and uh, intensive in the Catskills, it's, it's my favorite thing. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think for a lot of uh, the campers who have come, it's, uh, a highlight of their year. There's a, they've all become a really tight knit community. Like after the camps, they have like a weekly zoom that they do together and they all support each other and go to each other's shows whenever they're, you know, they stay at each other's houses when they travel around the world. It's people from around the world, Europe, Australia, U S obviously. Um, yeah, it's amazing. You should come. It's expensive. But you should come. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's the pitch right there. It's expensive, but you should come. I can relate to that experience, although I've I have nowhere near as many touring dates under my belt as you do. But when I left Chicago, I just I had decided by the time we moved away that the thing I found most satisfying was making music with other people who were learning to make music, teaching. And I've had great experiences on stage, but they don't outnumber the mediocre or frustrating or kind of mixed experiences that I've had on stage. And what I find is I've had many more positive experiences with teaching than, than not. And I like, like you're describing, you know, chances to actually create a community with people to feel like you're, there's a solidarity there. Like, this person really wants to write a song and I really like writing songs and it's hard sometimes, but sometimes it's just like all the things that you can connect with. It's different than greeting them at the meet and greet or at the record table. Or if, if I got to choose one creative thing to do besides teaching, it would be to go in the studio and make a record. But I so envy anyone who has a chance to sit down with one of their heroes and, and get to learn, even though, I got to do that. Like, that's how I got where I am is. Yeah. I got to go to camps like you're describing for old time fiddle and banjo and singing and, and dancing. And, and those gave me an infusion that lasted me through the year, even though I was doing those sorts of things the rest of the year, but it was just this like diamond of experience um, from the, you know, the intensity and, and the fact that it's crammed into a short span and it's a limited time. That's such a beautiful thing. So this is, yeah. If y'all go to sadsongssummercamp.com, you can, are there still spots available as we tape this? 
There are. Uh, one thing I'm apprehensive about about the camp, which has not been an issue so far, but both of the last couple years have had like, I think between 40 and 50 people at the camp, which I think is about perfect um, because it gives both of us and our guest instructors time to spend like intensively individually with basically everyone um, as they work on their songs and arranging harmonies for their songs and working on performance and whatever else they're working on. And I think the camp like says that the capacity for the camp would be like 120 people. And uh, I, I think it would not, I think it, I know it would be very different and I think it would be worse if that many people came. Um, so uh, there are spots open, <laughs> but don't everybody come. <laughs> we want, let's like, say, let's say there are like six spots left. Should we just say that? Yeah, there's like six. No, because that'll make it, that'll make people more urgent to come. It's not going to sell out, but it might possibly exceed what I want it to be. I think there's our, there's like already like 38 or 40 people coming this year. So, you know, hope uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like trying to get tons of more people to come, even though probably the camp people would not like to hear me say that because probably better financially for everybody if more people come. But I just like, I'm really want the experience to be what it has been. And so, yeah, anyway. So sign up for next year, folks, if you're listening to this, <laughs> in 2022 before july sign up for 2023 be one of the first 40 yeah. to 50 people and i can tell i know what you're talking about i know of there are camps in the fiddle and banjo world where they just have a hard cap it's like you know megan lynch runs these camps in nashville out of her house and so like people stay in these like a bunkhouse that they've built on their property and it's like there are x number of beds and then at that point we're sold out yeah um and it's not about excluding people. It's about maintaining the quality of the experience for those who come, which I can totally understand. So far, it hasn't been a problem, just naturally. And so if there's ever a year where it gets out of control and then it, and then we get there and it's not good, then um, we'd I'd have to, you know, we'll have to reconsider. Swing low, swing low for to carry me home in fire the sky. My breath's gone cold A kiss from the cold A blanket of snow overhead Slow, holy roller It's just rock and roll So we're we're coming up on about an hour of 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 chat. We're we're approaching it with every second um, somehow. And I would be remiss if I didn't have you talk a little bit about how you and I got to know each other better. Because the the punchline is that you ended up touring as Robert Plant's banjo player. <laughs> that's true um but yeah but i thought it'd be kind of a fun story to retell and there's probably things about that tour and that experience that i i don't even know um but do you do you remember how it came to be that i helped you with some banjo stuff so that you could um 
play banjo on this on this show? Of course. You were already we were I was already doing lessons with you though, wasn't I? I mean, no, that was the first thing I asked you to help me with. Yeah, so okay, I'll I'll do the beginning and then I would love to hear more about the tour. So the shortest version of this is as far as I know, you and I met and Kenneth when you and Sarah Jaros did a joint tour of the of the country, maybe the world, I don't know, but I I came to your Halloween show in um where would that have been? It was at the Paps, uh, the Paps. Paps Theater. Yeah, Halloween was the Paps because we did uh, Simon and Garfunkel and Joni Mitchell right. co- uh, costumes after the show. Exactly, as the encore. And that was an appropriate encore. Sarah texted me that day and said, Matt, I heard, heard you're coming. I need a dulcimer for the encore. That's right. And I thought maybe you'd have one. Or And so one of my banjo students at the Old Town School was is a Gary Bledsoe. Sorry, Gary, I don't mean to like give away your social security number. Um He's a dulcimer player, and he was willing to share a dulcimer for 24 hours with Sarah. So I brought a dulcimer up, and then we had an epic old-time jam after your show in the basement of the Pabst. And then I saw you again, I think, the next summer at the Denver Botanic Garden for Swallow Hill. You, you, you and Kenneth played one of Swallow Hill's outdoor shows. And I was coming to L.A. a month or two later, and we agreed that I would text you and just see if like you happened to be free that day. What I remember is that I texted you some September day and said, I'm landing in L.A. tomorrow. Do you want to hang out and play banjos? And you said yes, because Kenneth has promised Robert Plant or <laughs> Kenneth Kenneth has told Buddy Miller that I'm going to play banjo on this tour with Robert Plant. And so it became banjo lesson time immediately. Yes. OK. <laughs> I had forgotten that that was my first banjo lesson with you because then I took banjo lessons from you for a a long while. Okay, well, great. The Sarah Jarose tour where we met is where I learned to play the banjo. Sarah and Mark Richards, the sound engineer on the tour and wonderful old-time banjo player, um, taught me to play old-time banjo on Mark's Romero. Uh, So you, (laughs) right, we met like as I was initially learning the banjo and then, right. So I, I must've called you when I got my first, or you called me luckily as, as I got my first banjo gig, which was, so we were doing a charity tour called Lampedusa which, uh, for, um, for the uh, Jesuit refugee council, I think JRC. Um, anyway, wonderful organization and like recurring, tour that Patty Griffin and Emmylou Harris were putting together. And it was songwriter in the round format. And they had asked us to be one of the acts on stage with Steve Earle and Buddy Miller and Emmy and Patty. And like a week before, Patty got sick and couldn't do the tour. And they got as her replacement, (laughs) Robert Plant. And I guess, yeah, Buddy Miller was the musical coordinator and Plant said that there was two songs that he needed banjo on. And Buddy Miller called Kenneth and asked him if he played banjo and Kenneth said that Joey plays banjo. But the problem was I didn't. I did not play banjo. I had six months earlier kind of learned for the first time how to play old time banjo in the back lounge of that tour bus. I, I, this will be a little aside that I hope doesn't sound name droppy, but 
the after that tour, about a week, uh, two weeks after that tour. So like I had been playing banjo for two weeks. I knew how to play five songs that Mark Richards had taught me. And I literally had a note pad in my phone, like a note document, like with the songs on them. So I wouldn't forget what they were and like the lyrics. And uh, uh, my wife and I got invited to a dinner party at Steve Martin's house, a small dinner party. The guests were Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn and Sean Watkins and his now wife, Dawn. And they were like, bring your banjo. <laughs> so the first banjo jam that I had after learning how to play the banjo literally weeks earlier was with Steve Martin and Bela and Abby and Sean Watkins. And it was, I should have been so mortified, but I was just so in love with playing Clawhammer banjo that I was like excited. I should not have been excited for this, but I was like, hell yeah, we're going to jam. And I like, obviously we didn't jam. I just played my five songs and they jammed. And I, Cause like, I couldn't do anything besides that. But so these are my, this is like my introduction into the banjo world. And then my first like gig on stage is somehow Plant says he needs a banjo player and Kenneth throws me under the bus saying that I can play banjo. And uh, one of the songs he wanted banjo on was going to California. So I was like, all right, I'm going to learn how to play something for going to California on the banjo. And uh, yeah, I guess you called me and I I asked you, can you teach me how to play these like three songs that Plant wants? And it was amazing. It was the best tour. It was, yeah. We raised a bunch of money for refugees. We played going to California like the first three nights until the audience response was so disruptively long to the show that Plant like felt uncomfortable about it and like out of like he was a little mortified like he felt like you know because it was very collaborative in the round thing and he was like all right we're not going to do that song anymore but all of us who were getting to play it with him were like let's keep doing going to california this is pretty awesome and he was like no no it ruins the show and we were like i don't think it ruins the show <laughs> but so we only did that one a few times but then we did some other songs um so yeah you <laughs> helped me, a total beginner, fake my way through my first gig as Robert Plant's banjo player. I thought you did great. I, I had the good fortune. Um, you found me a spot on the guest list when you all came to Chicago, and uh, I got to see you in action, which was so cool. You did great. And then... Um, I got to meet Robert for half a second, thanks to you, and then just hang backstage. The coolest thing, I was telling um, a friend of mine recently about getting to meet Robert, thanks to you. And the coolest thing about meeting this world-famous rock and roll musician was hearing him sing that night. I I really didn't comprehend what a great singer he was until I was in a room where he sang. Like, And, and in that, in the round songwriter format, there is no hiding who can sing and who cannot. Like, yeah, that's a great format if you're a songwriter. Like, even if even if your voice isn't fully developed, you can still enjoy a really well written song. But you also can tell when someone's an, a fabulous vocalist, and it was it was yeah. extraordinary. But 
it was super cool. I got to shake his hand, which was lovely. But then, you know, you and I were visiting and he was just holding forth raving about Moaning at Midnight, that book about Helen Wolf. And to just hear this, one of the most famous musicians in the world for decades, that all he wanted to talk about when when it was just a backstage hang after the show was his fascination with this older musician. Yeah. And it was so clear. You got to spend many more hours with him, of course. It was so clear what a fan of music he is to this day. Yes, agree. And that was the main thing that struck me as well over the course of the two weeks was like, he's just a music nerd and he especially loves old, like traditional American and English folk music and especially the blues. He's like a blues nut as, I mean, you could, it's, it's been clear for decades that that's true, but like, it's just, uh, that's all he really wants to do or talk about, which is wonderful and charming. And he's, yeah, he's a true, like a real (laughs) musician's musician, even though he's, you know, basically only a singer. He played like some tambourine on the stage, but everyone else were, was playing, you know, was his band. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was wonderful to play music with. Super generous. I find it absolutely hilarious that in our curriculum together, we went from some Robert Plant material to Brad Leftwich's uh, Round Peak style Clawhammer book to several choice Adam Hurt arrangements. And um, I got to chat with Adam on this podcast and interrogate him about earth tones. I know I listened to that one. And some, and uh, Ferris and Jason. Don't forget about um, Ferris and Jason Romero songs that that we learned. Lost Lula, right? Especially Lost Lula, my favorite instrumental of theirs. Wow. I've got to, I've got to relearn that. That was a, that was a great, I had a lot of fun working with you on that material um, in, in, in the hang itself and getting to just hear the cool touring stuff that you were up to. Um, but also just, yeah, we got to play a bunch of amazing music, old and new, and, and everything in between. Well, Joey Ryan, um, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you on mic. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. You too. Thank you for having me. Do you, is your Jason Romero banjo within reach? It's within uh, walking distance. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sign off the public podcast episode. But if you support this program as a Relax Your Good super fan, which is a a full $2 a month, you're going to get to see an exclusive video of Joey sharing about his Jason Romero banjo, this this instrument of his that um, traveled around and, and uh, with which he played on stage with Robert Plant. And it's a gorgeous banjo, open back banjo, great for, for Clawhammer playing. So And was a birthday present from my my dear bandmate Kenneth. Yeah, he that was a very nice thing of him to do, to buy you this banjo. Yep. Um so Patreon supporters, you're in for a real treat. You'll get to hear and see Joey um, play this banjo and share about it. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. We're so long, so long for good. And if I had the guts, we could. The things that last, they carry on. 
They flicker fast and then they're gone. I'm glad we met and God we tried. My one regret, we got. Relax Your Grid is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Matt Brown. Thanks to David Brooks for letting me borrow a banjo to record a phrase of Jason Romero's tune, Lost Lula. Thanks also to Tim Brown for his post-production assistance, Otto Allard for his brilliant design work, Max Allard for the goofy banjo interlude, and to all of my Patreon supporters whose contributions ensure that I never have to read serial commercials during this podcast. For those curious about Joey's concert film recommendations, he's a big fan of The Last Waltz, as well as Questlove's Oscar-winning documentary, Summer of Soul. Tune in next time for my interview with Olav Johansson of the Swedish band Vessen. And until then, relax your grid. Relax your grid.